0: the present and future. Read, reflect and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording in the morning of November 5th, 10:41 a.m. I mentioned that time because right now in America, We're in a bit of a liminal space between the election that took place two days ago and the results that we are still awaiting with the rise of partisan political tensions about the very basic activity of counting the American vote. A number of states are still outstanding, have not been called. And as a result in this moment right now, when we're recording, we're in a little bit of a time capsule. It's possible that by the time that this podcast is being heard by all of you, The conditions around the American electorate will have changed. There will have been a president elected. There will hopefully have been both a acceptance speech and a concession speech, and we'll be at a different moment of time. But we are in a little bit of a time capsule in that our conversation today will reflect not knowing the result of that election. But our hope is, and really our goal for the podcast today, is in as much as neither I nor my guest are pundits about American political life. We will try to have spoken about a set of issues that transcend the particulars of who won and who lost and try to engage some of the larger Jewish questions that have emerged from this election and that face the American people and the Jewish community as a result. My guest today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with my friend and my colleague, Dr. Ilana stein who scholar in Skull-in-Residence and Director of Faculty at the Shalom hartman Institute of North America. Ilana, thanks for coming on Identity Crisis.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really looking for ways to make meaning in this moment, so thank you.
1: Fantastic. First of all, I don't know how you are in moments like this. Are you anxious about the election? Are you anxious as you wait for results? What do you do to cope with that anxiety? or Are you you calm because they can't can't fully control it?
0: Well, so I really enjoyed seeing someone's post that they said they're nauseously optimistic. (laughs) I think that captures the way that I feel. And the way that I deal with it is actually by trying to transcend it and not follow every Back and forth, I've been to the MoMA in the last day. I've been learning some Torah in the last day. I have not been, I've not been tethered to my phone, as it were, how about you?
1: I admire that. I don't usually get into a zone like this, but I have just been obsessively refreshing various news sites, have the TV on the background all day, been very unproductive. It's interesting, we closed our offices at the Shulham Harbin Institute North America on Tuesday as part of the free and fair campaign of a number of Jewish organizations that were giving their employees an opportunity, not just to have the time to vote, but also to volunteer. And I felt in retrospect, I was fine on Tuesday. I could have had a perfectly productive work day, gotten my voting and there was no line, but I needed Wednesday off <laughs> because I couldn't really focus on anything.
0: Yeah, I actually took Wednesday off so that I would be able to focus on what I wanted to focus on instead of having to focus on a humdrum regular run-of-the-mill day, because that I don't think I could
1: do. So now it's Thursday, and we're both back at work, and we're ready to try to talk about making meaning for the Jewish people out of this weird American moment. There are so many forces and variables at play here, not only a contentious partisan American moment, but obviously the pandemic lurking in the background of all of this. As, As we know, yesterday, not only was it the day after the election, but it was the most new cases of COVID that have emerged in America since the pandemic. So let's, uh, let's try to build a little bit of a moral agenda for the Jewish community going forward. Let's start even with the build up throughout the election, throughout the campaigns. What were, the, what were some of the issues that you felt that you were seeing in the Jewish community in particular? We can come back to America uh, more generally, but in the Jewish community and the lead up to the election. I, I know that you were thinking a lot about the performance of American Jewish identity in the political process, but what were you noticing and what was exciting to you or causing you concern?
0: Sure. So there are a few things, but I guess I'll start with the relationship between religion and politics, Jewish identity and politics. You know, we tell ourselves this story that American religion is privatized. We have a separation between church and state. And yet you look at how many prayers people wrote for the election, or you look at examples of people in religious garb at Trump rallies And it's not just Jews. I mean, my friends on Facebook were quoting the Quran. There's something here about the relationship between religion and politics that at first, or for a long time, I've been thinking of as almost a mistake, like don't hitch them to each other. But I don't think that's actually true. Meaning I think if we're gonna talk about Jewish ideas of what religion is, religion is not private. It actually is something that should shape the public sphere and the public discourse, what kind of culture you're creating from the Bible to the rabbis. It's corporate. Religion is corporate. It's not just individual and it's not just confessional. And I would like to interrogate a little bit more, I guess, two things. One is, why do I love when my side uses religion and Jewish values, but I hate when the other side does it? And I know the obvious answer is, well, I don't like how they're using it, but it might also be saying something about parts of my religion that I don't like, that's worth talking about. And the second is, what's the utility in not just saying, you know what, even within religion, there are denominations. You've got your Republican denomination of religion, and you've got your Democratic denomination of religion. Why don't we just do that? And I've actually been fighting against that because I want to believe that religion is bigger than that. But I'm also now thinking about the fact that actually at the extremes, they are different denominations. And at the same time, I'm worried about papering over the differences between people who vote Republican and the differences between people who vote Democrat, because there's more there. So an interrogation of religion and politics right now, I think would be a great way forward. For the Jewish community to think about itself.
1: Great. So let's pull apart a couple of those pieces. The last thing you said about the extent to which these represent different denominations, I think, is a really important insight. You know, we've talked together over the years about the increased irrelevance of the traditional denominational framework and the rising irrelevance of a totally different denominational framework, which isn't about questions of Bible authorship as the dividing questions that really are political questions. I want to come back to that because it goes to the question of whether it's possible for these different religions to actually see themselves as part of the same corporate whole or not. It's a whole pluralism question. And by the way, spoiler alert, you, know, you can have denominations for a long period of time until they actually become different religions. So one of the pluralism questions is whether these just represent worldviews that are basically unreconcilable. The first thing you said though was about our instinct to think that the separation of religion and state is because religion is the realm of the private. I would put it a little bit differently, which is America seems to know that religion is always going to be a domain of the public, but is working really hard through a separation of church and state to try to remind people that it can't dominate the public. So it's an effort to try to constrain religion into a place that it doesn't dominate our conversation. But inside the Jewish community, that's never gonna happen because what's the point of being a religious minority if you have to pretend that religion is entirely compartmentalizable? But the piece that I wanna pick up on most and I'd love to go further is this. I like it when, when Jews on my side enact their religion in connection to their politics, but I don't like it when others do it. I'm not going to put you on the spot to give an example on the other side, but I'd love to know what is it that you like when it's on your side? Because I find myself kind of skittish on both. I don't particularly like when Judaism is reduced to Judaism wants you to vote for this guy or the other guy, especially when these are deeply imperfect human beings and that we're stuck with a two-party system, which forces us to be as though we're, like, really, really in favor of this team over the other team, And of course, there's things that I like and don't like. So what's the version of religion and politics that you like? What's the version of it that actually appeals to you?
0: Sure. So let me clarify. I don't like the version that tells you to vote for a particular candidate and that your religion requires it. I do like the version of religious discourse and of religious tools to think about the values that are at stake. So when somebody says, when we look at our prophets, when we look at the Naveen, they basically say power at any cost is problematic from a Jewish, from a religious standpoint. That to me is a totally legitimate use of religion. That's in there. <laughs> I read it on Shabbat morning in the Haftorah. That's right in there, right? The question is, you know, what's the other side of that equation? Meaning, are there voices within Jewish tradition, and there are, that certainly say that sometimes power at any cost is necessary, right? And I, and I think what's happening there, I mean, I'm going to be totally frank. I have big problems with people supporting a candidate who's anti-democratic, who's scandalously unempathetic, who doesn't believe in the difference between truth and falsehood while wearing tzitzit and tefillin at a rally. I have a big problem with that, period. And I'm going to just name
1: that. Well, let's talk about that because there's an ends and means issue, right? Of if I believe that candidate X, and we're talking about the president, obviously. Yes. If you believe that the president embodies a set of views and behaviors that you feel are corrupt, but that the president has been reliably good about the Federalist Society order of judges that get you the perfectly decent human beings, ostensibly, (laughs) right, with moral character, who have a very different vision of America and a very different religion and state, aren't you basically saying, I don't like that you're doing that with your Tsutsu-san at that rally, even though you're basically now conflating ends and means?
0: So here's what I'm going to say, and this is why I think this is complicated, right? I have two questions when I see that happening. Number one is, hey, that's not fair. You're taking religious symbols that belong to all of us, and you're making them partisan. That's not fair. You can't take Tefillin and use them like that because they belong to everybody. I'm just being frank. Like that's really how I feel. And I'm sure that's how some people on the right feel when they see people protesting in a Tali. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I actually want to say, I understand that sense of discomfort. You're taking a symbol that is supposed to be common to everybody in your religious tradition and you're saying, I'm using it for this. But the second thing is, I just want to be totally frank. What I'm really bothered by is I'm bothered by the fact that there are voices within my tradition that are comfortable with someone like Donald Trump. (laughs) But that's what I'm bothered by. I'm just going to be honest, meaning I'm uncomfortable with those voices within the tradition unless I agree with them at that moment. I'm just being totally, totally frank. And it's real. And actually, there's a sense of even revulsion. And I have to be honest, I'm not super comfortable with people wearing religious garb at any kind of protest. I'm not, meaning I'm not certain that that is the way that these things are meant to be used. And same goes for Rabbi Avi Weiss in a Soviet Jewry rally. Same goes for a pro-immigration rally. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with it. You're taking something, and that to me is you're narrowing it in a way. It's different than using arguments from your tradition. You're using Jewish objects, I know it's in order to inspire, but I worry that it becomes a prop.
1: But you don't think there's a difference between a Soviet Jewry rally, rallying on behalf of solidarity with Jews, like it's part of the prayers. We we pray on behalf of those Jews who are in conditions against their will. And as a result, it's part of prayer. Is there a difference between this and that? And of course there has to be, there have to be. There is, you're right, there is. Otherwise you neutralize Religion to have no voice. You're a sincerity person, right? Prayer and ritual are actually acts of sincerity. That's how I live in the world. So I have to have some religious ritual vocabulary for which to do it. So, how much is your resistance here? How much is it really partisan? I'm not antagonizing just to antagonize. I'm trying to tease out what generates this discomfort because it's such a critical peoplehood question. It's not just I don't like your politics, I don't like how you're leveraging my religion for those politics, it's harder and harder to see ourselves as actually belonging to the same religion.
0: I know. I think I will admit that a Soviet jury rally is different. And yet, what do you think is going through the mind of somebody who is wearing tefillin at a Trump rally? Israel, religious liberty, Jews. (laughs) I'm not sure they think about it as any different right? So what I'm saying is I'm in process of interrogating this question because I really am not sure. I just know there's something that instinctively bothers me about it. And the fact is that if the American body politic or part of the American project is to basically say, we know that religion is going to come into the public square, but we're doing our best to try to keep it out or to minimize its impact on others. What I wonder is in The religious sphere, how much do you want to keep politics out of that and how much is that making religion irrelevant, right? And then the question is what if you're in the space between, meaning you're at a rally, it's a Jews for Trump rally and you're basically trying to say we appreciate what he's done for the Jews, we're not making laws here and we're also not in shul,
1: it seems to me you have two available options to contest the collapsing of religion and politics in a version that you don't like, which are either to try to argue for a total secularity. Let's pull these things apart from one another. I'm uncomfortable with Tsitsis at a rally, and therefore I'm going to say these should be separate enterprises and separate businesses. And by the way, a good section of the American Jewish left has said, no, we don't want to do that because then we lose religion. The whole project of Reverend William Barber and Rabbi Sharon Browse has been, no, you actually need a Jewish left that speaks in as full-throated a voice about the sincerity of the religious tradition to advocate for a very different political worldview. I mean, even Reverend Warnick, who's now in a runoff race for the Senate, is running as a reverend. That's not just his professional title. It's the driver. So that's one option is to try to secularize, but it doesn't seem like the left is moving in that direction. And the other is a more full-throated, I just don't like what you're doing with my tradition. And I have a feeling, Ilana, that that's what you're pushing towards, because I don't think you're a real separate thinker of religion on one side and politics on the other. And I guess, and here, I'll push even harder, you know more than anybody how abundant this tradition is with available opportunities to exploit, to take its materials, and to make totally different political arguments in the world. And I really struggle with whenever anybody uses the phrase, not my Judaism, because it's actually weak. It's so selective to say, to pick the prophets, for instance, as opposed to, I don't know, Deuteronomy. (laughs) Deuteronomy doesn't have the same vision as the prophets in terms of what should guide the social order. So what do we do then with a tradition that is so multivalent and a Jewish people that has so many available political options in which we can thrive? How do we hold this tradition together in some way?
0: I think that if you are willing, if a person is willing, if a community is willing to say, I'm gonna use a tallit at my rally, and I'm not gonna be scandalized when you do it at yours, then that's something. But I don't know what happens when those people find themselves in the same prayer space, not in a political moment, and they're all wearing telly tote. Does that come back into the spaces that are supposed to be a little bit less politically charged? And I think that's part of the possibility. Meaning if you wanna say, there really is, this is such a capacious tradition. And there are parts of this tradition that I'm very uncomfortable with. But if I'm going to be conversant and I'm going to be somebody who uses tradition and religion as part of my discourse, I have to be prepared for somebody else to be able to object on their own religious grounds. If we can do that, then I think we can stay together. And if we are in spaces where we are able to look at the same texts and the same rituals and not have to, each of us, give our valence to the exclusion of the other. If there are places, not neutral is wrong, it's just not explicit. If there are places where what's most explicit is religion and what's less explicit is politics, I think if you can have those different spheres, then you can compartmentalize, you can do it. But I do want to just say, it is a dangerous game. If you're going to be talking in the discourse of religion, by definition, you need to be able to let in ideas that you're very uncomfortable with and you think actually tarnish the way that you would like your religion to be shaped.
1: Yeah, unless you're willing as is oftentimes the case. To be a very strong advocate on behalf of a very thin reading of your own tradition, which is actually, I think, what gets played out a lot of the minute that somebody says Judaism says X or the Torah says Y, that is such a thin depiction of something, but it might be sufficient to be able to mobilize political enthusiasm to your side, because now I'm speaking on behalf of a thin tradition.
0: Let's go back to sincerity. How are you then using the tradition? Meaning the tradition is not an, it's not a means. It's not just a means to an end.
1: Great. So now let's move from the ritual question of showing up at a rally to the Torah question. So I think a lot about the difference between responding and leading. And I think part of what has happened, based on the shock that the American left and the American Jewish left experienced after President Trump was elected in 2016, was a pivot towards a kind of constant culture of response. And I have a larger political grievance about it because then you're not actually providing a vision of where you want to go. You're actually, you're constantly taking the lead from someone else about what you need to be talking about today. I think social media has that effect too. What's the conversation right now? right? Like an hour ago, we were talking about this, but no, no, now an hour later, I'm bad at this on Twitter, by the way. Like I find interesting things to say like nine hours after someone else tweeted and people are like, no, no, we, we've moved on.
0: We call that taking the local.
1: <laughs> That's right. I like that.
0: Some of us only ride the local.
1: <laughs> or Amtrak as the case may be. So it does seem though that the world of Torah, the world of let's talk about interpretation. The world of interpretation is also increasingly driven by the conversation in public policy. You see this happen all the time on listservs of educators or on Facebook groups of, does anybody have a source sheet on mass incarceration? (laughs) Something is happening right now and I need Torah. I need to excavate Torah to teach on it right now. I guess I'm curious as an educator, people come to you to learn Torah with you. I'm curious whether your own searching has changed, what you're searching for in the Torah in response to this political moment and what you think people are looking to you for in this moment? Does it feel like a thinning out of, I just need something to respond to what's in the current news cycle?
0: So I actually wanna separate out your question into two. One is, is it only responsive or primarily responsive? The other is, is it a thinning out because it's too directed, it's too focused. And I wanna start with the second question let's take mass incarceration for a minute. Or by the way, let's take the UAE agreement. Doesn't matter. What I wanna do is I wanna ask, what is beneath, what are the roots of your question, right? Because the roots of your question, something that Jewish tradition is gonna have something to say about. So mass incarceration, maybe the roots of your question has something to do with the fallibility of humans judging other humans, something to do with objectivity and subjectivity, something to do with prejudice and bias, right? If I keep digging down and down and down, ideationally, I can get to a version of the question that isn't only about the way our current discourse defines it. Our current discourse defines it in terms of race. Our current discourse defines it in terms of a legacy of slavery. Our current discourse defines it in terms of drugs. Our current discourse defines it in terms of civil rights in the judicial system. Those things are all true. They're all relevant. But I want to know what is the perennial human question that is being adjudicated here. And once I know what that question is, first of all, that question will apply in many other situations as well, meaning mass incarceration will be a case study of it. But it will be a question that is actually bigger than that, even though, of course, mass incarceration itself is big enough, right? And then what I look for, and this is why I I spend so much time in the rabbinic tradition, what I look for is I look for ways to problematize the simple answers. And if you can find texts and conversations within, and I'm going to go with the rabbis. If you can find texts and traditions within the rabbinic conversations that can actually pull out the big issues, then let's pull out the big issues and then people can push them different ways. In terms of the Torah that people are looking to me for right now, I think it may be different. Me and the Institute may be different because in some ways what we do as an Institute is we help people understand where they are. So we created this whole curriculum on the tribes of Israel, trying to figure out who are the different groups, who are the different players within Israeli society and what's going on within each one of them. Tell me about the ultra-Orthodox tribe. Tell me about the secular tribe, right? I think American Jewry needs that for American Jews right now. Who are the tribes? And not just within the Jewish people, but who are the tribes within America? And that's something I think the Institute, I think we need to do. As for my own piece. In the coming weeks, I'm gonna be doing a Talmud series on character. And the reason I'm doing a Talmud series on character and the limits of the law is not because I wanna say Donald Trump is this, 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 this. It's not because I wanna say civil discourse is this, 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 this. It's because what I see is an erosion of the importance of character in our society. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna interrogate different ideas within the rabbinic tradition of where character comes in beyond law. And within each one of those, I'm going to problematize. I'm not going to just assume you should always go beyond the letter of the law. That's always the way. No, it's not. If you read the rabbinic tradition, they'll talk about places where it's actually dangerous to go beyond the letter of the law and places where you should. It opens a real conversation, a real debate, where it's not simple because it it, it hardly ever is. Then the third piece, I would say, is that there are certain things about this election season that have just revealed that there are things that get a pass that I don't think should get a pass, and I'm not pluralistic about those things. So the fact that it's not a deal breaker, that somebody could be almost reelected or maybe even reelected, even though they're anti-democratic and they, they attack the free press, I'm not pluralistic about that. There's no pluralism for me on that. And I want to know what kind of education does it take, and this is not just for the Jewish community, it's for the American community, so I don't know how to do that. But what kind of education does it take to remind people of the importance of democracy? What kind of education does it take to remind people of the importance of empathy? I think that answers your question. None of those are thin. To talk about the importance of democracy is not thin, it's actually saying this has to be the floor that our country is based on, but to talk about things where there actually are problematics, like cases of character where it's not always black and white and not to be black and white about it, that gets rid of the thinness because it's thick.
1: Right, that correlates with something that I've found that I, I find one of the most thrilling types of feedback that I hear about Hartman teaching is when someone will say, you know, I came in and out of this classroom and I still have the same political views, but this forced me to interrogate, to challenge my own views, to define them, to articulate them more compellingly, to regard them through a different kind of ethical frame than I might have done beforehand. And in doing so, it's a kind of advocacy for the tradition itself, that the tradition isn't so easily mobilized in service of either what I agree with or what I don't agree with. I guess You know, maybe this is too banal to even say, it's just so much harder. My version of this, Ilana, has been something I've been teaching on for the last few years, which is trying to make clear that the moral, the political, and the partisan are not identical, that they live along a spectrum, that those moral disagreements we have with other people have to be much bigger than they are constructed to be and, and then you narrow your way to political, which is strategies and partisan, which are teams in pursuit of those strategies. And mostly I make that argument out of political necessity. If you live in a world in which you construct everybody who votes on the other side as not sharing your moral worldview, you've now cut your world in half and there's no shortage of violence, real or otherwise, that is now permitted against those who inhabit a different moral worldview. That's how religious wars get started, is that we've been able to depict the other as not just politically wrong, but morally corrupt. Now, the problem is that that construct, and it correlates to the way that you described Torah. I'm not studying character because I'm trying to, in a coded way, get people to vote a particular way, because I want to take seriously that character is a defining aspect of the human condition, and it's supposed to be. But it has been palpable. i felt this since 2016, every time I've given a version of this talk, the palpable sense of the collapsing of those categories. Because either when you give that talk on character, and if you have Trump voters in the room, whether or not you think that you are telling them, I'm not, I don't care. I ultimately don't care who you vote for. I want you to study character as part of Jewish tradition. There's no way in which they're not gonna feel subtweeted. What you're really doing, you're not interested in the questions I'm interested in, which are, you know, Trump voters would say character is one piece of conversation. The other is the dignity of the American project as we've long understood it, and a deep suspicion that progressives don't respect the dignity of that American project. Now yeah, we can go back and forth. Is that legitimate? Is it not? But there does feel like a real collapsing of that. And the risk of holding those things apart from one another on the flip side is that, The more I insist that I can be involved in a moral or a Torah conversation that's not directly mapped onto this, there are people whom I just lose their attention span because I'm in a crisis, right?
0: Well, first of all, I think it also has to do with my own character, which is, am I giving off a suggestion that I look down on people who made a different choice? And to be honest, a lot of people do that. And I try not to do that. And I think that is also part of why people collapse these categories. I'm gonna give you an example, which sounds like a Pollyannish example, but it's very real. My chavruta, my study partner of years and years and years, she voted Trump, I voted Biden. We had a chavruta yesterday in the middle of this insanity. We don't really talk about it. So I said to her, you know, before we start, I know you're a Trump voter and I'm a Biden voter. I'm sure this is a hard time. So she's like, yeah, it's hard for all of us. And then we had like a conversation about checks and balances for a few minutes. And then what did we go into study? Character. We started studying a sugya. We started studying a passage in the Talmud about what it means to try to charge somebody else for getting something that didn't cost you anything. (laughs) meaning sometimes it's helpful to be explicit.
1: And you were able to withhold from the inclination to say, you see, you see, you were able to hold back and say, no, we're studying Torah in a way that I know is going to flourish in the world. And I don't need, I don't need to.
0: Because first of all, we have pretty similar worldviews to begin with, she and I. So that's very helpful. But beyond that, we said at the outset, you know, And she says to me, she's like, oh, I was just listening. You probably don't listen to this person. She says, Ben Shapiro. I was like, no, I really don't listen to that person, right? And no offense to everybody on the podcast who listens to Ben Shapiro. It's okay. Like people are allowed to have their own views on what goes where. And I'm going to use that buzzword. If we're not canceling each other for every piece of it, right? Then there is potential there. I think actually because we were explicit at the beginning of our call, we just learned and we learned and we thought about it. And we thought about the stakes of what it is that we were learning, but it didn't automatically go back to, to the race for president right now.
1: It's very special to to hear about your chavruta, to be honest. I think very few of us, uh, Americans and Jews, have those types of study relationships with other people in general, <laughs> uh, much less those that are capable of standing. I felt, I, I realized the last couple of weeks how the double tragedy of pandemic and politics right now has also deprived us of the technology in the Jewish community of the Pesach Seder and the technology in America of Thanksgiving dinner, which would be right now, how great would it be in America right now that you have to sit across the table with your racist uncle? You have to, because that's what you're obligated to do. Or you have to sit across the table with the members of your family who think that you've lost your mind. And they have to sit with you. And they have to sit with you. And that's and you eat dinner together. And some of us get triggered and angry, and some of us you know, do the work beforehand of, this is what I know I'm coming into, this is what not. One of my strategies with a certain part of my family is I stay in the kitchen. <laughs> it's, it's really useful, like I'm the caterer. But I, of course I love them, so that's yeah. part, so actually I'm, I'm using that to be able to express love for them. Hi, my name is Sabra Waxman and I'm the senior marketing manager at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. I wanted to tell you about an event next week specifically for high school students. If you're interested in learning with Hartman, on November 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern, we're hosting a conversation and Q&A with Slate Senior Editor and Hartman Senior Fellow, Dahlia Lithwick, moderated by Justin Pines, our Director of Youth and Young Adult Initiatives. To register for this and other upcoming events,
0: go to shalomhartman.org backslash events
1: let's leverage off of this a little bit, which is the whole pluralism question. I know many Americans are really not ready to do that work of, oh man, turns out 65 million people voted for this other person who I think is going to be the downfall of Western civilization. And I have a lot of impatience for the kind of hillbilly elegy of America post-2016. Like, oh, you have to read this book because it'll help you understand all of America. Wait, can I ask you why? I felt it was condescending and preaching. And as a result, it made me defensive against the issue of inability to see another person or be in their narrative is not always your own failing. Mm -hmm. There are ecosystemic reasons why we don't see each other's narratives. They have to do with where we live and how we live. Sometimes they're good reasons, which is I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. So I don't, I don't think it's going to happen through that type of thing, but there's no question that the health of our people, our community is going to require this kind of bridge building. And I'm curious, A, what your own patience is for that and what you think we have to do to get there.
0: Well, look, I actually think that we need to be taking our cue from people who are actually more vulnerable by the kind of arguments that are being had in the country right now. So I don't feel so vulnerable. I'm, I'm gonna be honest, I feel very fortunate. Thank God I have the resources that I need. I have the community that I need. I think that when you ask people of color you ask people who are LGBTQ, you ask people who are factory workers, meaning if you ask people who actually are in a more vulnerable state and kind of follow their lead on how you do this, I think that's much more powerful than me sitting here as somebody who feels pretty comfortable and confident that even if democracy continued to erode, I think I'd be pretty much okay. And maybe that's naive. I think I'd be pretty much okay. I just, I don't think I can lead the conversation on that. I think you actually have to bring in voices. I was very struck by a friend of mine who is a person of color who wrote, don't paint anyone who voted for Trump as a racist. What are you even doing? People vote for candidate for a lot of reasons people vote on the basis of taxes people vote on the basis of religious liberty people vote on the basis of what they think that person is doing to shake up what the usual norms are meaning don't do that and that's what i meant earlier when i said papering over the different reasons why people vote a certain way i think that's dangerous also now you might say what you were able to disregard in favor of well, I like his Israel policies. I find that scandalous. You also might say to me what you were willing to disregard in favor of somebody who's not going to have those same Israel policies. I'm scandalized by that too. Meaning I want to find the people whose lives and whose liberty is at stake. And I want to ask them to lead the way on this because they're actually the only ones who can speak with a different kind of skin in the game. And I think we need their leadership right now. And it's on both sides. And I'm not talking about people who are racist being able to say, well, I understand Biden. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who really have different moral calculuses, but share the same basic floor.
1: Right. I mean, the obvious other piece of that, the problematic with that tactic of painting another side as embodying worldviews that you've already invalidated is that it's not just that you can't talk to them. It's that you reinforce to them your very closed mindedness and your inability to mount a credible alternative. There's just no version of you're a racist that enables me to start a conversation with you about race. There's no version of it because now you've actually you've decided this is the intolerable deviance. You are the intolerable deviant. I can't engage with you in any way. And in fact, I've assumed that you've now so clouded your moral vision that there's nothing else that you're capable of seeing. You see the world through a prism that's, that's not worth exploring Correct for me. Correct. I think I
0: do want there and there needs to be. And this, what really bothers me about how close this election is and bothered that people are able to disregard the fact that the current president is unable to call out white supremacy I am bothered by that. I think that should be a no-brainer and I think it should be a deal-breaker and any other cute term you want to use. This should be a sine qua non. Like it's just, and yet at the same time, there are clearly people for whom, many people for whom, that was not a sine qua non. So if part of my hope is that that becomes something that is a deal-breaker, I need to be in relationship. But it can't just be utilitarian. It also has to be like tell me what's going on for you. Like, why was this okay for you? What's more important to you about this? And is there a way we can find you know, some common ground? And sometimes the answer is no.
1: I'm not even sure I agree with you, Ilana, about that as a sine qua non, because it's not because I'm more comfortable with racism. It's because maybe the line around pluralism and the ability to tolerate others, maybe it can never live through narrative and it can only have a line of truth. When I believe that you're falsifying something, if I feel not falsifying something in the mythic spiritual sense, because almost all theories of human behavior are going to be mythic and spiritual. But I mean, truth, if I feel that you're lying, for instance, I'm not sure there's room in pluralistic spaces for climate denial. I don't have to understand the world through a perspective that doesn't buy climate science, because it's science. But whereas if somebody says, I have a different theory of America, I have a different theory of how race works in America. I have a different theory of social and political advancement. I don't know how much I can, I how much it helps, even on those issues, to say, once you've accepted that worldview, I can't be in relationship with you.
0: But wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I'm not saying that people are disagreeing about, you know, how race plays out in America. I'm talking about disavowing white supremacists. That's very simple, (laughs) it's not hard. Meaning my point is that there are some things that shouldn't be so complicated is my concern. I agree with you that there's no room for falsification, but I got news for you. People could read what you just said about climate science and say, well, actually I have a different theory about how you should be reading it. But that's the way people people can spin anything.
1: Yeah, I guess my pushback here, and I, listen, the last sword I want to fall on <laughs> is defending the president around his inability to condemn white supremacy. It's not like, <laughs> that's not the horse on which I'm riding into battle. But the slipperiness is the president refused to condemn white supremacy and therefore... The president is a white supremacist, the president is a white nationalist, and it is the prism through which he sees the world. And there's a huge difference between, I'm upset at what the president did or didn't do in this particular moment, versus he embodies this worldview and therefore I can engage with it. And then the next step, which is anyone who supports this president is therefore implicitly endorsing that worldview or shares it themselves. And that I think is the slippage that becomes very inevitable around narrative, which I think is a little bit different than a slippage around truth.
0: Fair. But where's allyship then? Where was anyone in the Republican Party to call him out and not disavow white supremacists? Right? Meaning maybe it's not just about the president, meaning maybe what it is, it's about the culture not actually realizing the stakes of what's going on. Maybe you're right. Let's not make it about who you choose for president. Let's not make it about that at all. Let's make it about what society tolerates, right? There's too much tolerance for racism. That's really a problem. If there's that kind of tolerance for anti-Semitism, I hear that. That's a problem.
1: I hear that, but it gets to what I think is a larger question and probably for another day of what has created a culture that makes us feel as though allyship is not, I wanna stay in relationship with you. And I sometimes agree with you and I sometimes don't what shifts us from character witnessing, which is one expression of allyship, into color war teaming. And on that level, one of the texts I keep going back to is, if in fact both the positions of Hillel and Shammai are these and these are part of God's truth in ways that humans can't access, why does the positions of Beit Hillel win and those of Beit Shammai loses? It's because according to the Talmudic text, Beit Hillel actually are better listeners. They put the positions of Beit Shammai beforehand. They are bigger people. And that means they're not empirically correct. But it's something about human conduct that actually enables some transcendent ability to be identified with the right side. You may disagree with that. Let me give you one last question. I'll just acknowledge for the record, the fact that Ilana didn't respond to that reading of the Talmudic passage does not mean that she necessarily agrees with that reading of the Talmudic passage. That's fine.
0: Good. Thank you.
1: Ilana, you know, the Talmud has this wonderful saying in a number of stories of where you want to figure out, like, what's going on. What are the values of a study hall? Is somebody will say to the child in the study hall, Psokli Psukha, what are you studying? And it's as though if you figure out what's going on in the schoolhouse, <laughs> that tells a bigger story. So I feel like you're a walking Psokli Psukha. What Torah are you studying right now? Because I know that whenever something's going on in the world, you're thinking with text. So what's the text that you're thinking with?
0: That's what I'm trying and what I'm trying to do. Well, first I just wanna say one last sentence on what we were just saying before, because I would be remiss if I didn't, which is I've dumped on Trump here a lot, which (laughs) that's just how I feel. But I want to just take the prism of what we were just talking about in terms of tolerance of like what happens when left-wing anti-Semitism becomes tolerable in American discourse and people don't call it out and people vote for the people who do it anyway and don't call it out anyway. Right. I just want people to like, Switch their frame for a minute from racism to anti-Semitism, okay? Now we'll talk about what the verse is, okay? Um, So there's this amazing, amazing, amazing rabbinic story, Agadah, in the Jerusalem Talmud first and then in the Babylonian Talmud that my friend Hannah Kapnick introduced me to. And it is a story of King David trying to build the foundations of the temple. He wasn't supposed to build the temple, but he wanted to build the foundations. And he's digging down deep because he wants these foundations to go all the way down to what the rabbis call the abyss, the tome. He wants to go deep, deep, deep into the earth. And he's digging, digging, digging. And he strikes something hard, and he can't dig anymore. And he still hasn't found the abyss. And it turns out that something hard that he found was a piece of pottery, which, you know, in the ancient world, is kind of, it's like garbage, essentially, right? Very cheap. Found a piece of pottery and he wants to lift up the pottery because he sees like, he's going to lift it up and he's going to keep digging and eventually he's going to find the abyss. And the pottery talks to him and says, you can't lift me up. He says, what do you mean? He says, you can't lift me up. I'm here subduing the abyss. You pick me up. The abyss is going to come and flood this whole world. And you know, King David has like a moment there. Where he's like, oh, you're telling me the thing that I was searching for is actually destructive. Oh, look at that. When did you get here? How long have you been here? Who are you? And this piece of pottery says, I've been here since the revelation. When God revealed God's self at Sinai and said, I am the Lord, your God, the whole world was gonna flood and God put me here to subdue it. And of course, David picks it up anyway, and the whole world floods. And there's a nice end to the story, which is, you know, one version is he prays and the water recedes. And another version of the story is somebody does some incantation and the water recedes. But the point is the water recedes eventually. But it's the line between our regular stable ground that we walk on and chaos is as thin as a piece of pottery. And if the pandemic didn't teach us that, I think the divisiveness in this presidential race could teach us that. I mean, to me, that's the verse, that's what I've been living with for eight months and it's only more so. And I ask myself a lot, what's the piece of pottery? Who's the piece of pottery? And what kind of chaos am I gonna bring about if I lift it up and I try to move it and I try to change it? And I just think there's a lot of Torah there that people could take in different directions.
1: Why does David pick it up?
0: I think he picks it up because he had one idea and he thought that getting to the abyss was gonna build the foundations of the temple that he so wanted to build. He had very pure, beautiful motivations. And this piece of pottery told him, you're wrong. What you think you're gonna do is actually gonna be destructive. You're wrong. And I don't think he could hear that until it was too late. And so he didn't listen. I'm King David, what have to listen to a little cheap piece of pottery for. We do that all the time. And it's it's in this conversation that we're having about pluralism. It's in this conversation of who do we discard? Who bothers us so much that we basically say, no, you are against my vision. My vision is this and you are blocking it. And I'm gonna move you out of the way. There is no moving people out of the way. There is no moving people out of the way.
1: Even those who seem the most irrelevant to us, there's no moving them out of the way.
0: How about especially those who seem the most irrelevant to us? Because we're probably just trying to move them out of the way instead of trying to move
1: them. Yeah. I assume that the two reasons why David does this is one, he believes that he can defeat the abyss. And the part of the story is of the hubris of thinking that. And in connection with that, maybe it's because if you think that the way that you're gonna build an ideal society is by unleashing chaos and then enabling yourself to build on the foundations afterwards, bad news. That there's some amount of the chaos that we keep down, not because we think that we're in some way Infinitely defeating it, but because it's part of our world, and our job is to not let ourselves be distracted by it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair, but I think it's crazy that we're having this conversation right now when I don't know what kind of chaos is going to erupt in the next few days, and some things are already starting. And how do you put that genie back in the bottle?
1: Well, thank you, Ilana, for that. Thank you for the Torah that you live and teach and embody all the time. I'll just, I'll say to our listeners. You know, I started the show by acknowledging the liminality of the moment that we're in recording an episode prior to the results of an election. And it's very possible that when the episode airs, you will already know the outcome. But I would advise us, if I can be homiletical for a moment, to remember the liminal moments, even in the secure moments. There are truths that liminal moments tell us about ourselves, our beliefs, our hopes, our fears, as much as, if not more than those moments when things appear much clearer. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening to our show this week. And special thanks to Ilana Steinhain for being our guest. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom hartman Institute. It was produced this week by Devin C. Coleman and edited by Alex Dillon. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online on shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. And you can write to us as well at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible. Everywhere else, podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for listening.